Welcome to OCS Field Guide, the podcast that helps you study smarter for the OCS exam. Hello and welcome back to the OCS Field Guide podcast. Today we are beginning our long-anticipated series on the shoulder with the only CPG we have at this time, the 2013 Shoulder Pain and Mobility Deficits, aka Adhesive Capsulitis, Clinical Practice Guideline. The shoulder and shoulder girdle is the second largest content region for the OCS, just behind the lumbar spine, at 15%. This is kind of intimidating to know in light of the fact that this is the only diagnosis for which we have a CPG related to the shoulder. Supposedly, CPGs on rotator cuff syndrome and instability are in the works, but we'll see how quickly that happens. So after this episode, bear with us as we assemble the available information to cover the rest of the shoulder. Preambles aside, I get the joy of presenting what is likely the most cut-and-dry diagnosis in the shoulder— adhesive capsulitis, or frozen shoulder. Now, this is an older CPG, so I'll be supplementing with a few recent articles as we go. As I often like to do, let's start with a practice question to get you thinking. A physical therapist has been treating a 55-year-old female patient with a diagnosis of adhesive capsulitis two times per week for the last four weeks. The patient had symptoms that began about eight months prior to beginning physical therapy. At last session, the patient reported that they were no longer having any night or resting pain. Her average pain was about 2 out of 10 on the NPRS, and it was noted that active and passive range of motion were equal at 35 degrees of flexion and 50 degrees of external rotation at 90 degrees of abduction. Thus, the physical therapist instructed the patient to increase stretch duration from 3 bouts of 30-second holds, just short of pain, to three bouts of one-minute holds, also just short of pain. Today, the patient reports that for the next 24 hours, they had intermittent pain at rest in the shoulder, and that she was awoken by pain in that shoulder at night. Thus, she did not perform her home stretches since last visit. She reports that by today, she feels that she is back to where she was prior to last session. The physical therapist should A. Instruct the patient to decrease stretch duration back to previous level. B. Apply heat and electrical stimulation modalities following stretching at the same duration to decrease post-treatment pain. C. Educate the patient that post-treatment soreness up to 24 hours is normal and encouraged in her stage of the disease process. Or D, continue the longer duration stretching in today's session, but instruct the patient to take the next day off of stretching and then resume home stretching the following day. The correct answer is A. Contrary to principles we would apply for other conditions like tendinopathy, post-treatment increases in pain or signs of increased inflammation such as pain at rest and night pain are signs we went too far with adhesive capsulitis. This will be true in all levels of irritability, but especially with moderate to high irritability and or in the early stages of the disease process. Thus, although heating modalities and electrical stimulation do get a recommendation in the CPG to relieve pain, it won't be appropriate to keep stretching at the same duration, nor would we tell the patient that stretching hard enough to create post-treatment pain is a good thing Or would we have the patient stretch hard enough that they had to take the next day off? 
Now let's jump into the CPG. First off, let's talk definition of this condition. For the purpose of this CPG, the definition of adhesive capsulitis or shoulder pain with mobility deficits includes idiopathic primary adhesive capsulitis, which has no specific known cause, and three groups of secondary causes of adhesive capsulitis, including secondary systemic, secondary intrinsic, and secondary extrinsic causes. Secondary systemic causes include systemic diseases like diabetes mellitus and thyroid issues. Secondary intrinsic factors, as in intrinsic to the shoulder, include things like dislocation, rotator cuff or labral pathology, etc. Secondary extrinsic causes, as in extrinsic to the shoulder, include things like CVA, cervical disc disease, or distal upper extremity factor. Pretty much, you can think of any of these secondary intrinsic or extrinsic factors as things that might cause prolonged immobilization due to pain, fear avoidance, or some other inability to move the upper extremity. They also note that pain and stiffness following a surgical procedure should not be considered in this diagnostic category of adhesive capsulitis. The overall prevalence of primary adhesive capsulitis is between 2 and 5.3% of the general population. Among people that have adhesive capsulitis, there is a much higher rate of diabetes and hypothyroidism compared to the general population. As such, the strongest risk factors for development of adhesive capsulitis are presence of diabetes mellitus and or hypothyroidism. Among individuals with hypothyroidism, females are more likely to develop adhesive capsulitis, while among individuals with diabetes, a greater proportion of males than females will develop adhesive capsulitis. Beyond those with systemic factors, adhesive capsulitis is most prevalent in individuals age 40 to 65 with a peak incidence between ages 51 and 55 and in people who are female and who have had contralateral adhesive capsulitis. The pathoanatomic features and details of what causes primary adhesive capsulitis are not perfectly understood, but we know that there is evidence of multiregional synovitis and or vascular and synovial angiogenesis, which progresses and ends up resulting in fibrosis of the capsule ligamentous complex, particularly anteriorly and in the rotator cuff interval. Now let's cover the clinical course. Historically, the clinical course of adhesive capsulitis has been considered to be a 12 to 18 month, four stage, self limiting disease. Though newer evidence shows that people may have symptoms, though milder, for years depending on the extent of fibroplasia and the amount of reabsorption that occurs naturally. In fact, around 40% of patients will still report disability two years after onset. And at three years, around 40% will still have residual range of motion loss, though typically minimal disability is reported in these individuals. However, individuals with diabetes have demonstrated a protractive course with a high likelihood of relapse. 
This highlights the need for treatment and education in this population. It will be important for us to combat the idea that this will just go away on its own, as that is often not the case, and we know that people can get back to functioning far quicker with proper treatment. Let's quickly walk through the classic way to stage this condition. Stage 1, or the pre-freezing stage, can last up to 3 months and is characterized by sharp pain only at end ranges, maybe aching at rest, and can have some sleep disturbance. It is often mistaken for impingement in this stage due to minimal loss of range of motion. Examination may reveal some loss of external rotation range of motion, but intact rotator cuff strength. Stage 2, or the freezing stage, is characterized by a gradual loss of range of motion in all planes limited by pain. You will likely not feel a true end feel here, as under anesthesia, individuals in this stage have only minor loss of true range of motion. At the tissue level, there is aggressive synovitis and angiogenesis occurring, but not significant contracture or fibrosis of the capsule ligamentous complex yet. This can last around three to nine months. Stage three, or the frozen stage, is characterized by lessening of the synovitis and angiogenesis, and thus lessening of the severity of pain. But at this point, fibrosis has progressed significantly, and the axillary folds of the capsule are usually lost. Thus, range of motion will be the most limited here. Frozen stage is said to last from 9 to 15 months. Stage 4, or the thawing stage, is characterized by a significant lessening of pain, which in many cases will actually fully resolve, and then gradual improvement of range of motion over potentially a 15 to 24 month period. Remember that this is the clinical course of adhesive capsulitis without intervention, when we just observe what happens. In other words, without intervention, uncomplicated cases will likely have pain for a year to a year and a half that then resolves, but may keep range of motion loss on up to three years or more if not addressed. Also, remember that there is a wide range in how each individual may go through these stages, and at each point, intervention or other factors can prolong or decrease time spent at a given stage. Thus, the CPG advocates rather for classifying patients based on their symptom irritability at any given point rather than this staging system. This allows the physical therapist to guide treatment based on how the patient presents on any given day rather than trying to guess what stage they are in based on time and history. On that note, let's touch on the Evaluation Intervention Decision-Making Guide included in the CPG. It consists of four components, medical screening, differential evaluation, diagnosis of tissue irritability level, and intervention based on irritability level. Obviously, medical screening is where we will gather information to decide if the patient is appropriate for PT evaluation and intervention, appropriate for PT and referral, or not appropriate for PT and rather referral only. Clearly, this is where we want to recognize if the symptoms could be coming from a more serious pathology, such as a tumor or infection. Now, spoiler alert for the treatment section, 
many of these patients will benefit from a corticosteroid injection, and thus they're often optimal patients for PT and referral. Also consider referral in these cases if a patient has signs and symptoms of either poorly controlled or undiagnosed diabetes or hypothyroidism, as optimal management will involve treating these underlying conditions. This is also where we would screen for any psychosocial factors that may affect the case. Though understated in this CPG, there has been a recent push for recognizing and addressing signs of central sensitization, such as fear avoidance, catastrophizing, kinesiophobia, tactile discrimination deficits, and other psychosocial factors in people with adhesive capsulitis, as these are related to greater chronicity. In fact, a case study in JOSPT in 2018 by Sawyer et al. demonstrated signs of central sensitization, such as decreased tactile discrimination, poor limb laterality, and fear avoidance in a patient with frozen shoulder after a failed bout of intensive ther- physical therapy. They began with a top-down approach focused on pain neuroscience education, graded motor imagery, and tactile discrimination for six weeks, and then focused on a more typical impairment-based approach with excellent improvement across all measures. If nothing else, this highlights the need to screen for these signs of central sensitization, such as fear avoidance beliefs, and apply appropriate interventions for deficits found in these areas. In that same vein, one RCT by Baskaya et al. in 2018 showed greater improvements in pain, function, and range of motion with the addition of mirror therapy to a patient's active range of motion exercises with adhesive capsulitis. So we may see more on this coming out in the literature in the future. The second component is differential evaluation. If you have your CPG out, you may note that they include two main other diagnostic classifications, which they say are the most common other classifications or diagnoses with shoulder pain, shoulder stability and movement coordination impairments, which includes dislocation or sprain and strain of the shoulder, and shoulder pain with muscle power deficits, which includes things like rotator cuff syndrome, rotator cuff or biceps tendinopathy, and generally things that we might call subacromial pain. We'll dive into those and what seems to be the leading classification system for the shoulder in future episodes, so for now we'll focus on ruling in or out adhesive capsulitis. The criteria for ruling in adhesive capsulitis are as follows. Age between 40 and 65, gradual insidious onset of progressive worsening pain and stiffness, pain and stiffness that limit sleeping, grooming, dressing, and reaching activities, glenohumeral passive range of motion is limited in multiple directions with external rotation most limited and worse in greater abduction. Note that that is different than your classic Syriac's capsular pattern. Glenohumeral external or internal rotation decreases as the humerus is abducted from 45 to 90 degrees. Passive motion into end range reproduce the patient's familiar pain and glenohumeral accessory glides are limited in all directions. You can probably rule out adhesive capsulitis if one of the following exist. Normal passive range of motion, radiographic evidence of glenohumeral OA, 
internal or external rotation improve with greater abduction, or familiar pain is reproduced with palpation of the subscap, aka if the subscap is actually what's limiting their range of motion and causing pain, or if they have upper limb tension testing that reproduces the familiar pain, or if shoulder pain can be altered by altering neural tension in different positions, or if shoulder pain is reproduced with provocation of a relative peripheral nerve entrapment site. Pretty much all of that to say, you're really only considering this diagnosis with individuals between 40 and 65 with insidious onset with similar active and passive range of motion loss that is brought on by range of motion into the restriction and not signs of some other pathology. Let's quickly go through how you would differentiate this from other painful range of motion limiting conditions. Though glenohumeral OA may have a gradual insidious onset, the history and age range are going to be different. Primary OA will likely have a much more gradual and intermittent onset over years rather than weeks and months, and will be most prevalent beginning at 60 years old and up. Also consider rheumatoid arthritis, as someone with a flare-up or new onset of RA could present with painfully limited shoulders. Remember that for whatever reason, though people may end up getting adhesive capsulitis in their opposite shoulder, it doesn't really happen at the same time. So red flags should be going up if you see bilateral symptoms or multi-joint pains and inflammation. Beyond this, I'd look out for acute calcific tendonitis of the shoulder, as this masquerades most closely to frozen shoulder in my opinion. It is similar in that it has a higher prevalence in women, individuals age 40 through 60, and a higher prevalence with thyroid and metabolic disorders such as diabetes. Just as primary adhesive capsulitis, it is not precipitated by any specific injury, but rather comes on insidiously. The main differentiator clinically to look for is that adhesive capsulitis will have a slow gradual onset, while acute calcific tendonitis will come on very quickly, such as someone waking up early one morning with severe debilitating pain in the shoulder. Calcific tendonitis is characterized by deposition of calcium hydroxyapatite crystals in the rotator cuff tendons, bursa, or other structures in the shoulder. This can develop into chronic calcific tendonitis, but most cases actually go through somewhat similar stages for which there are various theories, but most center around some kind of pre-calcifying, calcifying, rest, and then a resorptive phase. Thus, it is also sometimes considered a self-limiting condition. It can also limit range of motion due to pain and mechanical blocking of range of motion dependent on where calcium deposits most. This can even be included in the list of secondary causes of adhesive capsulitis. Just remember that true adhesive capsulitis will likely begin more slowly and then have progressively worsening pain and range of motion loss rather than a quick severe onset of pain. When in doubt, a simple radiograph should be able to reveal the presence or lack of calcification. On that note, let's move on to imaging considerations.
The diagnosis of adhesive capsulitis is primarily determined clinically by the history and physical examination, so there is not significant need for imaging in clear cases of adhesive capsulitis. Rather, we use it primarily to rule in or out other potential pathologies. Radiographs can rule in or out osseous abnormalities, such as that are consistent with osteoarthritis or the aforementioned calcium crystals with calcific tendonitis. MRI is also primarily only used if there is need to rule in or out other pathology rather than actually diagnosing the condition. But there are some telltale signs that can be seen with adhesive capsulitis, such as thickening of the coracohumeral ligament and the joint capsule within the rotator cuff interval, as well as joint volume reduction and signs of synovitis. So if the OCS exam asks if a patient with signs and symptoms of adhesive capsulitis needs to be referred for imaging, the answer is likely going to be no, unless they have items in their history or examination that lead you to need to rule out other pathology. We are going to pause here for today and pick up the rest of the CPG next time. Remember that the exam could ask questions about disease pathophysiology or they could give you a case that looks very much like adhesive capsulitis but requires you to provide some differential diagnosis. So I think anything we've covered today is fair game on the exam. Next time, we'll pick up with examination and treatment. Thanks for listening to OCS Field Guide. Don't forget to subscribe and then head to physiofieldguide.com for practice questions and more resources.